0: The fact that the people that had actually been incarcerated still seemed to be drawing a lot from the media representations, that I did not expect to find.
1: Hello, welcome. This is the Dr. Junkie Show, and I am Ben Boyce, your host. Today's episode is about the magic of media and the way that we learn things that turn out to be untrue by watching television and movies. In the United States, for the last few decades, we've preferred a steady diet of taboo and violent stories. And so that's what producers have offered us, because if they don't, we'll just change the channel. So what's on TV tonight? In the criminal justice system, sexually based offenses are... You know, I was thinking I was gonna gut you bowed astern stern. soon as I laid eyes on you, but a lack of day, you look so pretty
0: when you're scared, don't you? Get busy living, or get busy dying.
1: Right? What we've got here is failure to communicate. Right?
0: Animal the animal. <laughs>
1: Prisoner number 98V-238, Alexander Vogel, convicted June 1st, 98.
0: Two counts, murder in the second degree. Sentence, 50 years. Miami has a new breed of criminal.
1: Researchers have been looking at violent television and video games for decades, trying to blame bad behavior on programmers and distributors. But the correlations are sketchy at best. Most of us aren't going to watch a violent attack on TV and suddenly develop a desire to kill people. Crime and violence aren't compelling because we wish to ride along on exciting murders. They're compelling because the fear of violence fires up parts of our brain that make us engage with the story. I feel like evolutionary theory has been coming up a lot lately on this show, but here it is again. Humans evolved to be interested in just two simple things, avoiding danger and achieving satisfaction. Producers are simply hot-wiring our evolutionary desire to avoid danger or to have endless sources of satisfaction. So the good news is exposure to violent video games or images won't make you any more likely to commit violence. But the bad news is that it does make you more likely to expect violence. Whether we watch the news or primetime laugh track comedies or Hollywood blockbusters or unrated hyperviolent spectacles like horror films or Fargo, We come to believe that violent crime is much more common than it actually is. That's the real danger of these productions. They don't make us more violent, they make us think that others are more violent. And when we think that others are violent or dangerous, we tend to support policies that disenfranchise them or even lock them away. We're not confused because we're dupes, it's because we're human. When you think about something, it affects your state of mind, your emotions, You can't see a murder, fake or real, and not think about a murder. And what we think about affects how we feel, how we react, how we believe. If murder is on your mind all day, you're more likely to expect it as a normal part of life. It's called cultivation theory. What we see in media gets to us. It teaches us things about the world. My guest, Bill Useman, will talk about George Gerbner, the researcher who coined that term. Gerbner's research focused on what he called publics, groups of people who don't ever necessarily meet each other, but whom use similar stories to make sense of their lives, usually books, but more recently, television, film, Netflix, Twitter, TikTok. Publics, which Gerbner believed are created by publications, like films, TV shows, or books, are necessary for us to form individual or group identities. We define ourselves from the cultural texts we consume, the films we watch, the television shows or books or magazines that really stick with us long after we consume them. And you can probably think of a book or film from your youth that still pops up in jokes or family get-togethers. These stories are sticky. They follow us through life shaping our expectations about the world around us. So Gerbner was concerned about how easy it had become, way back in the 1990s when he was doing his research, to slip into worlds that were allegedly reflections of real spaces, but which inevitably turned out to be skewed or warped or even completely inaccurate. We used to have to search for new narratives, new stories, new ways of understanding the world. But now, all we need to do is plop down on the couch, and off we go. Tonight, the new warning on Pfizer's COVID vaccine with FDA approval. To Harry Potter's Magic Kingdom, or to Saved by the Bell's high school hallways, or to Big Mouth's vulgar adolescence. We exit our lives and enter the narratives on television, because that's how television works. Marshall McLuhan once said, The medium is the message, and this is what he meant. Moving pictures with overlaid audio are a medium, a delivery method called TV. Now we learn about the world, or we're cultivated, by common, culture-wide stories, which are designed for a mass audience, not for small groups. We learn about faraway countries and exciting adventures from what my grandpa used to call the idiot box, or television, and more every day, the computer. And my grandpa wasn't far off when it comes to some of what we learn, things that just aren't true. The trick is that we often don't realize where we learn these lies because we don't realize we've learned anything at all. We sit down, zone out, tune in, and zombie up. And we walk away with a boatload of bad knowledge, sometimes without even realizing it. Elevators don't have hatches in their roofs, and air vents can't be crawled through to enter a locked room. They're not big enough. But I'll bet you look up the next time you're in an elevator to double check, because we've all learned... Without realizing it, the elevators do have hatches. I mean, I saw it on some TV show. We've also learned that some drugs are so addictive that even one use will get us hooked, even though that's not even possible. We've learned that it's illegal to cut the tags off of pillows and mattresses, that most of the Earth's oxygen comes from the rainforests, that hitting someone over the head could knock them out for a few minutes without much damage to their overall health, that hacking someone's computer is a two-click task if you hire the right hacker but none of these TV myths are true. It's really bad when it comes to law enforcement. We've learned, falsely, that bombs have timers and wires that allow clever cops to defuse them. That cops yell, cover me, and then run into the line of fire. That most criminal charges result in a jury trial. That the police have to read us our Miranda rights or an arrest isn't legal. That bullet wounds can be minor setbacks. None of these TV myths is true either. The falsehoods we've learned from Hollywood could fill an entire episode. What's wild is that we convince ourselves that TV can't misprogram us. We know that you can't believe everything you see on TV or on the internet, but we're still convinced of all sorts of untrue things anyway. And these falsehoods come back to haunt us, because the media we consume is such a powerful tool for making sense of our worlds that we often poach it. We explain something that happened to us by comparing it to something that happened in a TV show. That's why cultural narratives are so powerful. They become the basic building blocks for making sense of our world and for sharing stories with others. Think about how you would tell a story about a car accident. I mean, that was some Fast and Furious shit. Or how you might describe a bank robbery. It was just like that scene in The Dark Knight. Or how you might describe a prison experience, especially if you haven't been there personally. You know, it was like in Shawshank. And here's where today's interview picks up with the ways we digest prison movies and TV shows, and how we come to believe things about prison and prisoners that just aren't true. With that, I want to introduce Dr. Bill Usman. Bill has a ton of work out there related to culture and media, including Inside Oz, Hyperviolence, Race, and Class Nightmares in the Engrossing Spectacle of Horror, and another piece called Challenging the Media Incarceration Complex Through Media Education. That's a chapter in a book called Working for Justice that we're going to talk about today. He's also got an older project called Blackphilia and Black Phobia: White Youth in the Consumption of Rap Music and White Supremacy. So stay tuned until the end of this episode to hear us talk about that. Bill also wrote a book a few years back called The Spike Lee Enigma, Challenge and Incorporation in Media Culture. Check that out if you're looking to hear more from him. But we're going to start with Bill's PhD dissertation project, which eventually led to some of these other publications. You did a focus group with 26 participants that had been to prison themselves. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that
0: actually started out as part of my dissertation when I was doing my PhD at UMass Amherst, and I had decided that I was interested in both the representation of prisons and prisoners on television, but also what the social impact of that was and how it was influencing public opinion and the public imagination about incarceration. My dissertation advisor was a guy named Michael Morgan, who worked closely with George Gerbner in all of the cultivation research. And the way they operated is they did content analysis of television And then broad based surveys of audience perceptions to find that the heaviest viewers of television tended to accept the the television version of reality rather than the actual world that they were inhabiting right outside their door. But I decided to go a little bit of a different route. And what I was interested in doing was comparing the television story about incarceration with the actual experiences of people who had indeed been incarcerated? You know, what are the stories that our television is telling and what are the stories of people who have actually experienced incarceration? And my initial instinct was to try to get inside prisons to interview people who were currently incarcerated, and I just had like a lot of obstacles to that. Anybody who does this kind of work, you've probably experienced it. I know Stephen has experienced it. Stephen Hartnett and many others. Um, They still
1: won't even let me in to volunteer. I've got a bit of a bone to pick, and I'm struggling. It's hard enough to start.
0: No, agreed. It's hard enough to start educational programs, but once you even mention the word research, they often don't want to have anything to do with it. I actually think it's a task for prison activists to take on a freer ability for educators and writers and journalists and scholars to get into the prisons and talk to the people who are actually incarcerated. I think that is a really important thing. The last thing that you want in a free society is a system of incarceration where everyone is hidden away and you don't have access to them and they don't have access to the outside world. So instead, what I was able to do is I was able to hook up with an organization that worked with people who were coming out of incarceration, basically a day program where as condition of their release on probation or on parole, or having finished part of a sentence, they had to report daily to this facility. And there was programming there for them in the facility. They got a chance to work with social workers. They had some groups. They had the ability to get some job counseling and those kind of connections and that kind of thing. And they were really open to me. Their only thing was, we're not going to force anybody to do this, which I was perfectly in line with, but anybody who wants to talk to you, we're okay with letting them talk to you. Then we wanted conditions of anonymity as well. So, you know, no one's real name was used or anything. And so what I would do is, you know, once a week for a while, I would just kind of show up and say, hey, I'm Bill. You know, I'm doing this research project. Anybody want to talk to me about what your life in prison was like? And, you know, there was some suspicion to it that I completely understand. Some people were just like, flat out, I don't know who you are. I'm not doing this. And I was like, that's fine. That's absolutely acceptable. But then other people were down for it. So some days, maybe two people would come and talk to me. Other days, you know, I would have as many as six or seven. And I did that several times and I recorded. They gave me permission to record the interviews. That in and of itself might have turned some people off, but it was important for me to get their actual words. So then we transcribed the interviews and I was able to look closely at the things they were saying. One of the major things that I found, which I expected to find, is that the stories of television were very, very different than the stories of the experiences that people really had had. Uh, But then the other thing that I was interested in, going back to that social impact thing, is what did they think about how incarceration was represented on television. A couple times we watched a few clips from the program Oz and we talked about that. People talked about other things that they had seen. And so there was like this kind of interesting disconnect where the stories they were telling about their own lives incarcerated were very different than the television stories that I had looked at. And yet at the same time, when they started talking about television, they kind of echoed that sense that some of these programs were very real. So there was like that disconnect that I had to explore, which I ended up concluding like just kind of proved the cultivation idea that sometimes what we see in media can trump even our own personal experiences when it comes to our imaginations
1: about what our lives are like. Michel de Certeau is like this old dusty philosopher from the 80s, mm-hmm. I think he was a French guy, but he's got this quote about media and how we watch TV and we say to ourselves that we know it's all hogwash. We do not watch it and think, I think Shawshank Redemption is prison. And yet, when we walk away, something has happened. What's the difference about spaces like prison or jail compared to the grocery store? Because when I watch, I just chose the grocery store out of the blue, but there's a show on TV right now called Superstore. They focus on funny things, you know, somebody dumping a gallon of milk on the floor that people that work in a grocery store would have to deal with. And if I walk away thinking I've learned something that happens to not be true, I can walk in that space and maybe recheck. For most
0: people, even though the US incarcerates, you know, millions of people every year, it's still a relatively small percentage of the population that will ever actually experience incarceration themselves. And of course, that depends upon demographics, and race and class and gender and all that stuff. But the less likely it is that we will have daily experience with something, the more likely our perceptions of it are going to be framed and influenced by what we see in film and television. You know, I think war is another example of that. A relatively small percentage of the population will ever actually get involved in um, military service And yet, if you stopped 100 people on the street and asked, do you think you have an idea of what it's like to be in a conflict in a foreign land, I think a lot of people would say, yeah, that they do think that they can picture that in their heads, that the old political scientist Walter Littman, you know, had that phrase, uh, the world outside and the pictures in our heads, which I use in the book to talk about the difference between what we actually experience and what comes to us from mediated forms. You know, I do think that the more distant or alien in experiences, the more likely we are to be influenced by media representations. The fact that the people that had actually been incarcerated still seemed to be drawing a lot from the media representations, that was more baffling. That I did not expect to find. What I took away from that is that the power of these representations to shape our understanding is even more so than maybe we would originally think.
1: And many of us have recognized from living in this culture that if you really want to help somebody understand something that they don't really understand or you're trying to get a message to them, if you can quickly appeal to another narrative that they already know, if you say Tom Sawyer or Shawshank Redemption in our society, you have a pretty good shot of somebody suddenly blinking and getting a bunch of mental pictures to pop into their head.
0: So that was the advantage of recording the interviews and you know, then being able to transcribe them and, and see the actual words that they were using. I don't have any of those specific documents on hand, but I do remember one particular occasion where one of the guys started talking about a movie he had seen. And he went into really great detail about this movie, about these two guys who were incarcerated, and one of them ends up stabbing the other guy. And he was relating it, almost as if it was something that he had experienced himself. There was such detail, and it had obviously made such an impact on him. And a bunch of the other people in the group that day, they kind of chimed in that they had seen that movie and how great it was. Even though the stories he had been telling before that did not really reflect the narrative of that film that he then started talking about. It was clear that it had made a real impact on him. It had even filtered his own experiences in some ways.
1: There was also this theme that showed up throughout of the negotiation process involving a no, yes, where they would say, well, no, it wasn't like that where I was at, but a long time ago, things used to be like that. Or if you go to another place across the country, things are absolutely, absolutely like that and you didn't have time to unpack this but it made me wonder if the fact that we live in a country that loves violence but has this cognitive dissonance that we never admitted it's against the law to assault somebody yet we cheer on people in cages as they pummel each other we love boxing we love violent sports and we have this infatuation with the romanticized past make America great again the valiant south will rise again if these are two more tools that are so vital to making sense of the world
0: No, I I think you're onto something there. A phrase that came up was back in the day. You know, back in the day, that's what prisons were like. And I, you know, I didn't want to challenge them. I was much more interested in just hearing how they articulated these ideas. If I had pushed back a little bit, I would have said, well, how do you know that? You know, how do you know that this is what prisons were like 30, 40 years ago, if you're only 27 years old or 28 years old? Or like you said, they would talk about other institutions, that they knew people who had been in these other institutions that were much more violent or much more dangerous or that sort of thing. I think it does reflect a a certain kind of cognitive dissonance there. About our relationship to violence. And, you know, most of the people that I talked to were men, and very much there was a sense of it was important to them to tell their own stories in a way that reinforced their masculinity. So they, I think, at times had a tendency to exaggerate the violence that they and themselves had experienced. And because their own actual experiences did not reflect that as much, they then started turning to media representations to reinforce that. Because, you know, one of the things that I was surprised at was that most of the people I talked to did not talk about the environments they had been in as outrageously violent environments. You know, they talked about fights that would break out and things of that nature. Now, I didn't have access to people who were locked away In the bowels of maximum security prisons, where you would expect the most violent criminals to be. But I did talk to people across a range of institutions minimum security, medium security. Some had been in some maximum security facilities. But there wasn't this sense that riots were constantly happening or people were constantly getting stabbed in the showers and in the cells, which is such a huge part of the television narrative about what prison is like. And that's not to say that prisons are not violent environments, because they are. I think they're violent environments, not so much because of the people who are imprisoned in them, the minority of whom will be people who committed violent offenses, but they're violent environments because by their very structure and nature, they're based in a violent hierarchy. But not the kind of spectacular violence that television tends right. to draw on in order to bring the viewers in.
1: No Oz bricking people into walls and, yeah, branding no, your name into the butt <laughs> right yeah. And right. what you're making me think of, too, is this negotiation process that we often forget people that are going into jail and prison or that have family members in jail and prison are human beings too. And they watch Correct. the same narratives right. we do and they have not right. been to prison till they've been there. So I spent a year and a half in prison and before that I had spent probably a total of two years in and out of county jails. And I knew because I had seen Shawshank Redemption and every prison movie out there that the second I moved to the big house from the local jail, things were going to change. And so I got a deck of cards and every day I would spend every waking moment that my arms wouldn't give out of myself flipping a card and doing the amount of push-ups on the backside. I started starting problems with other people in my pod in the county jail in this effort to like get myself used to conflict. I tried to change who I was because I knew, look, dude, you're getting ready to go into jail and they're going to chant fish, fish, fish the first night. And you're going to be victimized unless you become a victimizer. So we all go in there with the same belief and we try to harden ourselves up and we expect it, but we're still human beings. So we don't run in and start punching people We're just always on guard. We're in constant trauma mode. And then some of us get out and the day still hasn't come where the whole prison erupts in a riot because it usually doesn't. We're all stuck in the same terrible situation, but by and large, we make it work. And now we're left with a choice. Go home and tell your people, I had the softest, weakest prison experience of anybody ever or the most powerless time in your life. You're locked in a cage. How are you going to tell the story? take back some of the power for God's sake. Tell it that maybe you got lucky or you masculined your way through those, you know, really tricky ones so you didn't have to draw blood. But it's really difficult for us until we get into therapy, which helped me a ton, to retell that story in a way that says, oh, I was just as misled as the rest of you.
0: I think that's a really great insight. And I definitely was feeling that from the people that I was talking to, that the last thing they wanted to do was admit that they hadn't gone into prison and kicked ass, basically. I hope I can say that on your podcast. Oh God, it's, um, it's, it's
1: pretty vulgar. <laughs> okay. It gets to cussing at times. It's war on drugs stuff. So you can imagine we're pretty frustrated. Okay. <laughs> um,
0: yeah, so like that's the last thing they wanted to do was admit, you know, I did nine months here. Or I did a year and a half there. I did four years here and I never once punched somebody in the face. Even if you could kind of tell from the stories they were telling that, yeah, they didn't stab anybody while they were in prison because they didn't feel like they had to and because they found other ways to cope. But it's not reinforcing of that hyper-masculine image to say, I found other ways to cope. When things looked like there was a lot of tension, you know, I went into my cell and just read. Yeah, Nobody was going to admit that though, you know?
1: Yeah, And the saying is, do your time. The second you get there, all the old heads, all the people that care about you at all say, do your time. Do your own time. Lay back and let it go. But we're still carrying around with us. If the shit hits the fan, I mean, I got to survive. And again, the majority of it's rubbish. But we know that, hey, this is life or death. I'm not going in there unprepared, hoping that all the movies are wrong. I've been told that there's some truth to this. Right, exactly.
0: The story that we get told all the time is you go in, and the first thing you do when you get there is you find the biggest guy and you walk up to him and you punch right. him in the face. There's Who's actually guy. going to do that? Right.
1: Right? Yeah. And there's um, a bigger guy you didn't see that was probably his friend. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just, yeah. A, you nailed it. It's a torturous place right. where power's all misarranged. I mean, really what you're there trying to do at first is just figure out what the hell is going on and why it isn't what you were told. And be low key. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do
0: your time. The last thing you want for most people is to call attention to yourself. That's not a sexy story to tell.
1: No, it's not. And that's actually where we start to talk about textual or cultural criticism, which is this idea that we look at Oz or we look at Prison Break or the Shawshank Redemption and we start to talk about Who cares? What's the problem? If I watch Superstore, to go back to the common space where most of us go all the time, although it's COVID, some of us are picking our groceries up, but spaces we're familiar with, it's not that big of a deal if somebody lies to me and they put the ceiling in those stores at like a thousand feet in the air. I can walk into a Walmart here in town and look up and realize, oh, well, that was wrong. The misrepresentations of prisoners are way more insidious. What do we usually see when we see a character in prison on TV or in movies?
0: Well, usually they're focused on violent criminals because that's dramatic and it's spectacular. But you know, I know, people who do this work know that that's actually a minority of the people who have been imprisoned. Mm -hmm. Most of the people who are in prison are in prison for low-level, non violent offenses. A big portion of that is drug offenses. But so often, and this is another insight from cultivation theory, television and the movies retreat to violence because it's an easy story to tell. And it's a story that looks the same around the world when you're trying to sell these products in the international market. It's a lot easier to sell a violent story than one that might be more culturally grounded or culturally specific or culturally complex. So they tend to focus mostly on violent criminals, which in and of itself is a misrepresentation proportionately. And then they jack that up even to, you know, another extreme where it's the most bizarre violent of the violent it's the hannibal the cannibal and it's serial killers and it's all of these really really extreme representations which are so rare in the actual world that we inhabit there's a lot of emphasis on escapes which anybody who's actually been incarcerated would laugh at because that's just such a ridiculous thing. Michael Um, Schofield
1: tattooing the blueprints to the prison on his body and hiding a razor blade in the skin of his arm. Yeah, it's all. But it reinforces all those other stereotypes.
0: Because then that's the fear. Like if they can escape, then they can come and harm us in our communities. Uh, There's a lot of focus on riots, because that can be something that can be turned into like a big spectacle. So basically, the pattern is all of the rarest stuff actually gets the most focus and the most attention both in television drama and the movies and in television news yep. as well you know yeah. because news is based on novelty the idea that 800 guys woke up had breakfast went to work had dinner came back to their cells and fell asleep That's not a compelling narrative that's going to sell a television show.
1: Yeah, stare at the wall. And this is what prison is like. If you want to see a legitimate prison drama, go in a room with three other stinky guys who don't get enough showers with nothing to do, who are all on the verge of mental illness. Because when you take away your input as human beings, we all begin to go mentally insane. Right. And then just lock them in there and stare at them staring at the wall for eight hours and tell me how long you're going to tune in. This isn't the producer's fault. It's the consumers. The producers are just the cooks that know if they make a healthy cookie, it's going to go to waste and we're going to throw it in the garbage because we're going to tune into Fargo season 84. That's all, head blowing off. And all the plot is, is driven by violence. So the second we're in a culture that loves violence, we've got something deep inside us that likes this taboo that you can't touch and this violence that we just feast on, but we don't want to admit it. Of course they feed us those because once in a while violence exists in prison. The penalty is that when we watch and we haven't been in it 12 hours today as an inmate, and then we came home and watched 30 minutes on TV. Oh no, We've been in it zero minutes as an inmate for our whole lives. And we've watched 7 million hours on TV. And 6.5 million of them were draped in violence and underhanded plots and escapes. Well, the natural consequence is that I know it's so much hogwash. I don't believe Michael Schofield broke out of prison. It's a fictional narrative. What does stick is that, but I do know there's a lot of really bad people in prison. It's a pretty easy place to get out of. And it's a place that a lot of terrible folks go and they just love it. Every day they wake up and it's a party and they're waiting for the next fish to come in so they can get the guards to beat them to death. And it's unavoidable once the pattern starts.
0: No, it is. And, you know, we could almost do like a Marshall McLuhan thing here and argue that it's the very structure of the medium itself that demands those types of spectacular narratives.
1: Yeah, Marshall McLuhan's message, for those that aren't familiar, is the medium is the message undergraduates have a really hard time because they overthink it. It's actually as simple as you just said. He's saying, depending on what format it comes through, you listening to this podcast would not be the same as if I put it in visual format with graphics. Your brain suddenly does different things. And when you're watching a visual image like the funhouse mirror, which is an analogy you use called our television, we are actually engaging in a different sort of learning or a different sort of, communication process than we are if we're reading a book or we're listening to a podcast. Can you talk a little bit about that funhouse mirror, which is a
0: great term? Sure. You know, it's just one of the ways that television is compelling for us is the fact that it gives it an illusion that we're looking out the window. Here's a window into the Black Lives Matter protest in Cincinnati today. Here's a window into the crazy press conference that Trump Through today. Here's a window into if we're watching Grey's Anatomy, you know, here's a window into the lives of these doctors and nurses. But it's not, it's a constructed narrative in both news and drama. When they go to do the Rachel Maddow show tonight, it's not just going to be like, hey, let's send our cameras anywhere and see what's happening in the world today. You know, there's a script. It's very carefully laid out. This is what we're going to talk about. This is what we're not going to talk about. These are the words we're going to use. These are the images we're going to show. What we end up getting is, I'll use the word distorted, but only because it's distorted if we forget that it's a construction, which the medium itself is designed to get us to forget that it's a construction. It wouldn't be as powerful if we didn't take it as reality in some ways. So when we forget that it's a construction and we start taking it for reality, that's when it starts operating as that funhouse mirror because it actually is a really distorted picture of what's going on in the world. And again, like not as a criticism of the people who are making it, because it's not a conspiracy. You know, there aren't people sitting in a back room somewhere thinking, you know, how can I give the public a distorted picture of the world? The only conspiracy is to make as much money as they possibly can. That's what they're sitting in the back room calculating. How can we draw in as many viewers as we possibly can? Because that's, you know, how we make our money. But it is a distortion in terms of it's not the real world. You know, sometimes I talk about that, René Magritte painting, which is a very realistic drawing of a pipe, but then above it in French says, this is not a pipe. And the name of the painting is The Treachery of Images. Mm -hmm. You know, that images, the treachery is that they draw us in to make us think that they're real, but they really are never anything but the image. Mm -hmm. So when we forget that the television shows, news, drama, comedy, the movies are images. That's when that funhouse mirror effect can
1: kick in. And you can't help it. And it's worth pointing out again, we're using terms like forget sort of loosely because you never forget just like De Sertosa. We know it's hogwash when we turn on Nurse Jackie, Nurse Jackie was like an addiction drama, which is the exact same thing. We could look at it with ableism, with people that are able-bodied and dramas that focus on disabled identities. We could look at it at any area where people don't always have a natural relationship to whatever the space that's being explored is. And addiction is another big one that this podcast focuses on a lot it's really easy to yank some hot stereotypes out about this is what detox looks like. Oh, and you're curled up in a ball. And this is what addiction looks like. You're always running around stuffing five pills at a time into your mouth and chewing them up and snorting stuff up your nose. And once a month, you have an overdose in the back room. You're breaking the law and committing federal felonies like, Sure, those things all happen. And if you take a group of 700 addicted people, you could probably find an example of all. The trick is to keep us on board. We want to turn on the show and then go away for 45 minutes while we ride with those characters. And if you don't keep me tuned in, if you don't keep me forgetting that I'm watching TV, well, then I'm going to remember I'm watching TV and I'll think about something else I'd rather do. And every year, this gets a little bit more intense as we get this fractured media environment. The competition for your attention used to just be one-dimensional, and now they're to the point where they realize, we'll turn on our TV, we'll open our laptop, and we'll pull our phone out, and they want to keep us on all three, right? Because they've realized they can slice this attention into small pieces and profit from it. It's not that these are bad folks. They're really good cooks, and they're selling us exactly what we want. The question we just finished the semester, our last class is tomorrow morning in a class I teach called Prison Communication and Social Justice. And this is when I always get these questions that are like, What are we supposed to do? in our culture, whether you're talking about racism or sexism or patriarchy or ableism or the war on drugs, classism or poverty, any of these oppressive systems that are much more interconnected than we'd like to admit, we are not to a point where we can start to really come up with legitimate solutions because we haven't culturally admitted the problem. The United States has been built on saying racism solved since before the 13th Amendment came out. And then ever since people have said, oh, we're so woke, pat on the back. And 50 years goes by and then their grandkids look back and go, you guys were monsters but we're woke if you can convince people of three things that there's a problem that they can't avoid it and that it's about to show up at some unknown time this is from your work in working for justice that you can basically push forward any sort of proposition and i'm doing a lot of work on finishing a book up about the roots of the war on drugs the original manufacturers of this new system called the war on drugs that before never existed got together and said. Look, you can buy heroin at the grocery store and most of the people that are struggling with addiction are just fine. So cheap, they're not poor. They have people around them and it's labeled so they're not overdosing. Many of them still have full-time jobs. How are we gonna outlaw this stuff? And what they did is, convinced people there was a problem, that they couldn't avoid it, and that it was about to show up and hurt them at some unknown time. With the war on drugs, they did this with race. They convinced them that the problem was not the heroin, but the people that were using it were going to threaten this system of white supremacy we had. How do prison dramas do these same things?
0: Well, you know, interestingly, also through race. There's very little in American culture that you can understand if you remove race no shit. from the equation. You can't understand the American economy if you don't include race. You can't understand American politics, certainly, if you don't include race. You can't understand American education, the labor market. You know, like, race is at the heart of the American experience. In, you know, media representations of prisons, there it is. Again, so much of it is based on creating that belief that black and brown people are more violent and are more criminal than white people. And we could go back to the very beginnings of U.S. media, you know, even print media, but certainly we could look at the film industry. And, you know, one of the films that is still taught in film schools as just an amazing aesthetic achievement and technological achievement, and it was. But the film is also a celebration of the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, which many people will talk about as the first major motion picture, the first major film in the way that we think about film now. It was about the rise of the Ku Klux Klan as this heroic force saving white society in the South. And so we see those same patterns that have persisted in different forms, in different ways, but as the cultural theorist Stuart Hall talked about, the traces of all of those old media stereotypes and tropes still exist. They're not completely gone. The traces are there just like if I pick up this cup, my fingerprint traces will still be on that cup when I throw it away. Six hours from now. You know, we've been fed a pretty consistent media diet of these really false and damaging stereotypes of black and brown people that have suggested that they represent a threat. And so the best way to handle that threat is more policing and eventually just locking them away as far away from us as possible in as secure conditions as possible. The problem that was created is a completely fictional problem, you know, that black and brown people are criminal and savage and and threatening. It has no basis in reality, but it was effectively created as a problem, and then the solution then becomes policing and incarceration.
1: Funny, some of the narratives, I'm trying to think of the superhero movie that came out that was these hyper-violent nowadays, these superhero hyper-violent.
0: Was it the Suicide Squad? Suicide
1: Squad. Yeah, and it starts with this scene where Harley Quinn is like in a cage inside a prison, inside a prison on an island in the middle of nowhere on the moon, surrounded by like nuclear warheads. And the Joker just kind of wanders in, blows a hole in the wall. We're seeing yet another representation of this prison environment that is Penetrable. It's always going to be able to be broken into, or manipulated, or taken advantage of. They all have their own televisions, and they're streaming whatever they want in their cells. And clearly, as taxpayers, we're fronting the bill for that. We don't think that Harley Quinn exists when we watch that. We do think that that prison environment exists, right. even if it's a little exaggerated. And goddamn, I'm not paying for those monsters in there to have internet access and all the fun things they get in the tennis courts. And none of this stuff, by and large, doesn't exist anywhere. We started today talking about this feminist lens and the the separation of each against his other. And I've been looking a lot. I talked to a researcher named Paul Kibble a couple of weeks ago who does a lot of work on Christian privilege. One percent of the people in the United States own almost 50 percent of the resources in this country, right? That doesn't work unless everybody in the other 50 percent of this country is really angry about that, but not at the one percent at each other. We're not all united in fighting the same struggle, but instead we're fighting against each other. And I wonder if that has a lot to do with why these narratives have remained so important. As a country, we've absorbed this for so long that, sure, producer thinks, I want to make a monster, and they think to themselves, how can I make the most viewers look at an image of a person and go, monster? Well, suddenly these tropes, these old racist tropes pop to mind, and the producer either has to fight them off and make a less scary monster that's white, or... They just appeal to these racist roots that we still are all trying, or not, to weed out of ourselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I don't think it's a conspiracy in the terms of there aren't any meetings anywhere to talk about this. You take Fox News, for example, because I think Fox News is one of the most egregious perpetrators of the divide-and-conquer mentality and rhetoric, guys like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, you can pretty much tune into every episode and they will be painting a story of us against them. And the us are increasingly the aggrieved white population. And the them is anybody who is either not white or does not identify with the white establishment power structure. It's perfectly fine to bring on black and brown people onto those programs as long as they are black and brown people who still identify with the white capitalist power structure. So you take that network. They don't have meetings at that network to talk about how can we divide and conquer the American people so that they're angry at welfare recipients instead of billionaires. That's never going to be on the agenda For the meeting, the agenda for the meeting is always going to be, how do we beef up our ratings? (laughs) And what Fox figured out, and you got to give them credit, if not for their mission, you have to give them credit for their business acumen. They figured out that there's a large market in appealing to white grievance. And so they just totally zoomed in on our demographic is going to be Older, for the most part, not always, but for the most part, older white people who are uncomfortable with the changes that they see happening in the world around them and who find a voice in the guests and the hosts that they watch on Fox News. If you really, really want to understand the Fox News audience, actually don't pay any attention to the Fox News programming. Look at the Fox News advertisements. That will tell you all you need to know about who Mm -hmm. they see as their audience. Mm -hmm. So increasingly, it's going to be reverse mortgages and
1: medication yeah i'm in a bad spot yeah and this is it's worth like layering this a little bit to some of the things i've talked about in past episodes united states version of masculine patriarchal norms promises all especially white men but anybody that can check any amount of these boxes white dude heterosexual pretend to be a christian able-bodied we are promised certain things if we fit the definition of whiteness We know, I was taught from a young age, damn it, wherever you wanna go, son, you can go. You can be whatever you wanna be. You can be the president of the United States. I was promised this. This is what my country is built on, bootstrap mentality. The second I turned 18, I looked around like, where is my million dollars? Where is all this stuff that you liars told me Well, it's with the 1%. And you can have it if you're incredibly lucky and meet the right people and play by the rules of this system. But unless you do all that stuff, you are guaranteed to end up frustrated and angry that you did your time. Where is your reward? You can't attack the 1%. What are you going to do? Go to the gated communities and knock on their door and give them a piece of your mind? We've seen what happens when they even see protesters outside. They grab their AK-47s and they go out on the front lawn. How dare you come to our Mm -hmm. neighborhood? What you can do if you're frustrated is turn to those other powerless folks who can't sue you, don't have access to the mechanisms of power to make your life miserable, and we all just scream at each other.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's not immigrants that are taking your jobs. It's robots. It's automation. Next time you go into that grocery store that you were talking about, watch how many of the aisles now are self-service automated checkout instead of where you actually get to stand in line and have someone actually check you out. I refuse to use the self-service one because I know that every time I do that, I'm participating in putting another person out of a job. But the millionaires and the billionaires who run these corporations, if they had their way, they would replace every worker with a robot or a computer or some type of automated system. But you're never going to hear that perspective on right. Fox News. Not right? out loud. It's always going to be, you know, here come the immigrants.
1: Right. And we can't even blame these capitalistic owners because we all live in a system that was designed from its roots to favor them. They didn't make that system up. They didn't whole cloth design those rules that they're now playing with. They showed up, read the rule book that's hard to find, but yeah. found out how to play this game and they realized, well, the way you're supposed to do it is cut bottom lines has happened repeatedly in our past. We went from industrialization and those jobs started going away. We've had upheavals and jobs that used to exist. Nobody climbs up mountains and cuts ice out of the ground for a living anymore because we have refrigerators, but those people didn't die. We evolved as a culture and we realized we had to monetize and pay for other things and value other jobs. And it may be time for us as a culture to recognize that this Trump movement and all this madness we've seen that a lot of us were like, Martin Luther King Jr.'s moral arc just had like a sledgehammer taken to it, and it was bent up in the air. What's going on? That may be these death pangs of people who are realizing, not only have I never gotten mine and I'm frustrated, but now things are changing, but I'm not on that list. What's up with that, right? You don't get to pass me and still be disenfranchised, but a little less disenfranchised, as opposed to joining forces. It's maybe a good time too. I want to ask about like your ideas of solutions between what you call media literacy and media education, media activism or anything else that may be on that list.
0: Yeah. So that's always the hardest part. <laughs> Tell you me know, week, about it. Week 15, they were looking yeah. at me like you're not giving yeah. us any solutions. <laughs> no, exactly. You know, the easy part is to say, hey, look at that mountain over there. The hard part is how are we going to climb up that mountain or how are we going to roll the boulder? up that mountain, but it keeps rolling back at us like Sisyphus, and it can seem like Sisyphus sometimes. One of the places that we really do need to start is with universal media education. Media plays such a huge role in all of these other issues, in shaping our perceptions of the world that we live in and the people around us, that we have to really start focusing on educating a population that understands how media work, understands the economics of media, understands how stories are constructed, understands how images are constructed, and understands the social impact, the effects of the media that we use. Increasingly, what I see as the major problem that we're facing as a society, it's the problem of disinformation and propaganda. Because it's hard to argue, and I'm not arguing, that media, for example, is a bigger problem than climate change, or that media is a bigger problem than economic inequality, or that media is a bigger problem than racism and sexism. I'm not arguing that, but what I'm arguing is that media is the first step because all of our perceptions of all of these other things come to us from media. So if you're convinced that climate change is not a problem, or if you're convinced that we don't live in a racist society, Or if you're convinced that there is no such thing as economic inequality, then we're doomed. How can you be motivated to work to change a problem that you think doesn't exist? So I think first we have to combat what really is a virus. And it's difficult to use the word virus these days, but I think it's apt how do we combat the virus of disinformation and propaganda? And that's the very first step. And I think what we really need is universal media education to help us do that. And I think it has to start at a really, really young age. It has to start in preschool honestly. Now, I'm not going to be able to sit down with a four-year-old and start talking to them about the intricacies of Marshall McLuhan's theories. But what I can sit down with a four-year-old is say, hey, look at this ad for this toy, and then let's look at the actual toy itself. (laughs) You know? Look at the ad for this fast food burger, and then let's look at what that burger actually looks like, right? You need to start that at a really, really early age because by the time the kids enter school, they'll have already absorbed thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of media. So, you know, this can't just be like a high school course. This can't just be like a college course. We have to start it early and then it has to be sustainable throughout our lives. Even for people who aren't in school, we need to have media education that's happening in community organizations and in public libraries and in our workplaces and all the other places where we can get groups of people together to talk about important things, I think we need to be doing that on a regular basis. It's a big task. It's a huge task. I would actually advocate that we have a government department of media and information. That's scary to some people because they start thinking about like state propaganda. I'm not talking about them as being content providers. And maybe it could happen, maybe we wouldn't need that own department, maybe it could happen through the Department of Education, but I'm talking about funding so that we can actually do these things in a way that makes them sustainable, because it can't just be haphazard and volunteer. We actually need to be spending as much every year on media education as we do on other forms of
1: education. It's crucial. Oh, and the threat you know you're going to run into immediately is that we tend to live in a country where we actually do the exact opposite of that, especially if you are a religious family or if you are a a family that maybe is deep into an organization that is multi-level marketing or different things that like really come to inform your identity. Wealth is another one. You actually, in our country, have been given full leniency to just teach your kids Lessons about the world that are complete rubbish that by the time they get out in the world at 18, they go, how did I not know that the Confederate, I was just talking to somebody this morning about the Confederate flag, like the deadest argument in the world. And it's still a debate. There's still people occasionally that'll insist. I didn't know that the guy who was hired to design that flag said that it should stand for all time as a symbol of the supremacy of the white race over (laughs) the inferior races. Why didn't I know that? Media literacy would have taught you things like when you read something that makes you feel good double check it with five reliable sources, and then go to the complete opposite side of the spectrum and find out how their argument works. When you hear about flat earth theory, don't say, what a bunch of idiots. Go find out what is in that that convinces logical people that are pretty smart. There's something in there that if you can understand how that argument sparked with people, you'll understand humans a little bit better, and you'll be less likely that when yours shows up, if you really think that Scientology is bogus, who knows? Maybe they got it right and everybody else has it wrong. If you really think they're bogus, you stand to gain by figuring out what they used to convince people that it wasn't bogus because you better watch. Yours is coming, right? If you aren't tricked yet, you will be. Do you have a minute to talk about rap a little bit? Sure. So your article was called Blackophilia and Blackophobia, this idea of eroticization versus straight up fear of black people. And if I understand your argument right, you're saying that they're basically the same thing in our culture in the United States. Is that right?
0: I think I would argue that they're two sides of the same coin that are interrelated in many ways. It's an older article at this point. It was it was one it of is. my early publications. I think, was it 1993?
1: I think it was 03, 2003. But it may, I may have actually oh. seen a reprint in something. I'm actually a fan
0: of rap music. Me too. Um, but rap music is just like, it's a genre. You know, I could say I'm a fan of jazz, but I don't like all jazz. I'm a fan of rock, but I don't like all rock. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of rap music that I like. There's a lot of rap music that I don't like, you know, that I think is schlocky or just doesn't appeal to me. But what has been most sold to white consumers is visions of rap music that kind of echo all that other stuff we were talking about, right? These extreme stereotypes of, you know, hyper black masculinity and drug use and criminal activity and violence and homophobia and misogyny. There's rap music that's like that, but there's a lot of rap music that's not like that, but that doesn't get as heavily promoted or sold to us by the music industry that's just trying to make a profit. What I looked at in that article was the fact that the majority of sales of rap music are actually to white consumers, which makes sense if you think about it because white consumers are still the majority in the nation. But it's very easy to have racist attitudes about black people while simultaneously loving and consuming black culture so i actually start that article with an excerpt of dialogue from spike lee's do the right thing where one of the white sons in that film is is talking to the character played by spike lee named mookie the pizza delivery guy and mookie is challenging him you know basically that he's a racist And the kid says, no, I'm not a racist. Like, I love these Black basketball players, and I love these Black musicians. And Mookie's like, no, but you're still a racist. It's absolutely possible. And in fact, in American culture, it's been the norm for people to, the phrase is, you know, love Black culture while hating Black people, to be against policies of racial equity while at the same time, loving the rap music that you are make. So that's what I was kind of fascinated about in that article. I was drawing this argument that both the support of racist policies and the consumption of certain types of black culture are two sides of the same coin of white supremacy.
1: Yeah, and I see this link to your other work with prisons, which is that two things. The biggest consumers, the ones that you got to market to if you really want to make the most money you can is white consumers, white middle class consumers. And with prison movies, this means, well, then sell them the cookie they want, give them the violence and the sexual misconduct and all that taboo stuff. And with rap music, if you look hard enough, you will find the worst rap music you could imagine. It will be about staring at a wall or walking down the street. Boring, right? The beat will be whack. Or you can find hyper-masculine, hyper-violent. Also, I mean, you can find anywhere on the spectrum. You can find it mixed in with country music, rock music. You can find it Christian-oriented, and it's all about Jesus. The ones that sell, just like the movies. The ones that the white people show up, and they're like, I'll spend my coin on this one. He talked about this in that same paper. DMX with his shirt off, covered in blood, just dripping off him. And I think the name of that album was called It's Dark and Hell is Hot. Even this allusion to like, evil and the demonic forces and all the stereotypes that bring you right back to how cocaine was originally outlawed in our country with this lie that black men that were under the influence of cocaine could be shot by 38 caliber guns and they couldn't be brought down. So that police officers around that time switched to nine millimeters into 40 cals. That's right. the same imagery that's always resonated with white America. And we don't talk about it so much more now because the resonation takes place quietly but we talk about it with our coin. Those are the albums that get bought most often by, again, white consumers.
0: I'm hoping that since that article came out, it's almost two decades old now, which is amazing to me because I still think of myself as 29. Me too. uh, Even though I'm I'm long, long past that. But I'm hoping that maybe that's starting to change a little bit. You know, now you have artists like Kendrick Lamar and Childish Gambino who are getting a lot of attention and who are very, very successful, who are giving us something a little different than the types of artists that I was talking yeah. about. You but know, you
1: still see of- Common doesn't have as easy of a time selling an album necessarily as somebody that can come out and just lean into those hyper-masculine sure. stereotypes. And that's maybe the is I think back to, you'd mentioned this too, like this idea of minstrelly, And if you're not performing... Right the worst stereotypes that about black folks that I've always just heard and known my whole life. If I can't see you perform that, I may be more likely to go up the record rack, I'm aging myself to, and choose another album that does a better job of giving me this racist image that I've known all along is true and put it to a wicked beat and then let me steal that part of culture. Because to go back to what I said about being a white man, I was raised to know, go wherever the hell you want. Take what you want and leave the rest. This is a culture of domination. And I am the guy that can be president, CEO, millionaire, whatever I want to be. Part of that is take it. And if you want it, use it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Any final words on drugs? We didn't talk about it a ton today, but drugs, the war on drugs. Well, you know, just that it's been a key
0: weapon in that divide and conquer mentality that we were talking about a little while ago if you want to understand racial discrimination in the united states the war on drugs is a great place to start it's not the whole picture but when you look at the likelihood of a young white person who's in possession of cannabis going to prison versus the likelihood of a young black person in possession of the same amount of cannabis going to prison that's a foot in the door to understanding Racial discrimination in the United Mm -hmm. States. If you go back a few years and you look at the policies that they passed, making the consequences for possession of crack cocaine so much more intense than the possession of powder cocaine, that's another insight into Mm -hmm. the racial discrimination of what I think is more accurately described as the criminal injustice system in the United States, because we don't have a criminal justice system we
1: have a criminal injustice system. Well, this has been fun, Bill. I really appreciate you. I imagine we'll do it again sometime in the future, but thanks for sitting down and talking. Again, that was Dr. Bill Useman, and he has a ton of work that we didn't have time to talk about today. So check him out. And the next time you turn on your favorite TV show or your favorite podcast, keep in mind Bill's analogy of a funhouse mirror and try to think of TV not as a window to reality, but as a deliberately twisted snapshot of one perspective edited, polished, and scripted to keep you and everybody else watching. TV shows nowadays are so good that even those who have been to prison, people like me, use them to tell our stories because they put a mental image into the mind of whoever we're talking to about a space that they've probably never actually been inside. Unless we watch closely, and even then, we're likely to be misled by the TV and the movies and the podcasts and the media we consume. And when we learn, over and over, that prisoners are dangerous, violent monsters, or that drug users are thieving, selfish sinners, or that elevators have emergency hatches, we naturally support policies that align with those beliefs. With the elevator, it's no big deal. But with the war on drugs and the prison industrial complex, that means supporting tougher laws, longer sentences, stricter prison environments. Prisoners don't need any of that stuff, and neither do taxpayers. Love yourselves and the addicted people in your life. I'm your host, Ben Boyce.